0: deceive ourselves with highfalutin reasons that aren't the real reasons we're hiding the real reasons
1: welcome to the one you feed throughout time great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have quotes like garbage in garbage out or you are what you think ring true how they feed their good wolf.
2: Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce ON, perhaps the best-kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest-growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, On shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And On is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items apply the code try on feed at checkout to test your new products for 30 days love them keep them not convinced send them back for a full refund that's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is try on feed
1: Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, an American philosopher, novelist, and public intellectual. She is the author of 10 books, many of which cross the divide between fiction and nonfiction. Her latest book is called Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away. The book is an exploration of contemporary relevance of philosophy. Goldstein is a MacArthur Fellow, has won the National Jewish Book Award, and numerous other honors. In September of 2015, she was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Obama in a ceremony at the White House. To get a free download of Eric's favorite Rebecca Goldstein quotes, go to oneufeed.net slash Rebecca. And here's the interview with Rebecca Newberger goldstein
2: Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. I'm happy to have you on to talk about your latest book, Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away, and also to talk with you a little bit about the fact that you just won a National Humanities Medal, which was presented to you by the president at the White House. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like and then the ceremony itself?
0: You know what it reminded me of was um, in the Iliad, when a warrior is in great danger and he's about about to be killed and and the god who favors that particular warrior just sort of swoops down and picks him up and puts him someplace on some beautiful, tranquil field, and he looks around and he's like, w- what just happened to me? <laughs> um, and that's what it felt like. It was just somebody swooped in on and picked me up and then I was back in my life and thinking what just happened to me? I can't believe this happened to me. So, um, yeah, it's it was a uh, it was a kind of transcendent experience.
2: Yeah, I bet. Well, congratulations. That's really a that's a big deal.
0: It was it was it was great, and I have to say that the uh, fact that it was—I don't want to get political—but the fact that it was that particular president meant a great deal to me.
2: Yeah, yeah, that sounds amazing. Well, our podcast is called "The One You Feed," and it's based on the parable of two wolves, where there is a grandfather who's talking with his grandson, and he says. In life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second and he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do.
0: I certainly am a great believer that there are certain emotions in us that we ought to um, cultivate and and enlarge, and others that we should try to shrink as much as possible. I was interested uh in the in the parable as you just told it because they're both they're both called wolves, and wolves are usually thought of as um i you don't know what's kind of um, not particularly lovable beasts, very very clever beasts, but not particularly lovable, not like dogs. Um, you know, that they're both called wolves. Um, and, and I do, I do think that actually those, those negative emotions are more, they are more wolf like and they're more voracious. They're very strong and that it's uh, very easy to let things like, you know, resentment and anger and hatred overtake you. And it's much harder. To cultivate and to enlarge the loving wolf emotions that, uh, um, gratitude is, a, is another one that I would put there on the list. I think that's a very, very strong, a very important emotion to, to cultivate, uh, gratitude. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that, that, that can be more difficult, especially to make them grow so that they're not just, uh, directed to the people who are genetically connected with us, you know, our own, our own family and tribe can, um, but you know the world at large. That's very very hard. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about was that uh, they're both wolf-like in the sense that they can, you know, they can take you over. They can they can uh, uh, kind of eat you up. And what we want is for the loving, ennobling, uh, grateful emotions to. To take over one's personality as much as possible. But that's that's hard. I think one has a bigger appetite than the other, <laughs> frankly. It
2: certainly seems to be, and it seems uh, there's plenty of the bad wolf food kind of laying around.
0: It really is. You know, and it's probably an evolutionary, you know, uh, legacy that we are very devoted to ourselves, our own will to survive, and for our own uh, you know, kin uh to survive and we have natural feelings of empathy towards, you know, those who are very close to us. But it's it's much it's much harder to to uh to feel it for the world at large and that it takes real effort. So one seems to just sort of naturally be there and the other the other takes great effort.
2: Yeah, we had a guest who said that the good wolf is kind of the runt of the litter for him, which, you know, it made made sense to me that it, that one takes a little bit more effort to feed. So your latest book is called Plato at the Googleplex. And it's pretty clever in that what you do is you basically cast Plato into a bunch of modern settings. One of them is, you know, going to Google and the other is going to a book reading like we were just talking about before the show. And so if I were to be able to get Plato on the show, which would really be quite a guest. Um, They'd have to feature us on iTunes if we had Plato, I'm pretty sure. If we were able to get Plato on, what do you think he would have to say about the parable?
0: Plato would have a lot to say about this parable. I mean, in some sense, this is exactly what he was most concerned with, which was, um, how do we nourish what's good in us, and how do we starve what's not good enough, uh, and he believed uh, that it was reason, um, that it was the kind of philosophical reason and ethical, moral thinking that he was trying to develop um, the various techniques uh, for that, for seeing our way clear of our innate selfishness. And self-centeredness. He, he knew it as well as as well as we. He didn't have the the benefits of knowing about evolutionary psychology, but he knew he was a great observer of human nature, and he knew that there was a great tendency in human nature to be self-centered, to be egotistical, to be greedy. Uh, to be angry, uh, to be resentful. Um and in fact, he actually used, oh, you know what, it just, he uses a parable that, you, that, that features two animals, not wolves, but two horses and a, and a charioteer. So there's this chariot, and um, it's being pulled by two horses and one is good and noble, and can be easily controlled by the charioteer, the other is wild and 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 lustful, and um wants what it wants. it's only aware of its own desires um and there's that charioteer, which is you know one's controlling self, trying to trying to rein in uh the bad horse and 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 uh, goad on the good horse. And so it's very, it's very similar, actually. So he's very concerned with this. And you could actually say that he was developing philosophy, and he really is, in some sense, the founder of the Western tradition of, of, of philosophy. He was trying to answer precisely this question, um, how do we reign in what's bad in us and cultivate what's, what's good in us? And he felt it was reason. Uh, and it was uh, trying to gain perspective, trying to gain some sort of objectivity over one's own life, uh, and um, understanding the nature of virtue, what it is, and why it's good for us, uh, and why it's good for all of us, you know, why it's good for society as a whole. So this is really the roots of of Western philosophy lies in trying to answer precisely the question that you're posing.
2: Yeah, the subtitle of the show is "Conversations About Creating a Life Worth Living," and that idea of a life worth living is—you have it in the book many times—that that's what Plato was concerned with.
0: Exactly. So you know, he he was um, uh, very much under the influence of, of of Socrates, and so much so that. Uh, you know, Plato wrote in, in dialogue forms, which is wonderful because it's art. It's not only great philosophy, but it's great art. It's kind of philosophical drama. And there's really there are sort of you know real characters and and almost real stories that run through through a lot of them. But he features Socrates, uh, who was this eccentric character in in ancient Athens, in almost all of the dialogues. He we have twenty-six of his dialogues. And in 25 of the 26, Socrates is often the main character. Sometimes he takes a more marginal position, but he's often the main character. Um, And one of the earliest dialogues is Plato's presentation of Socrates' uh, defense, his apology, because he was brought up on charges, of capital charges, of uh, having... Uh, challenge the gods, have been impious and corrupting the youth. And in the apology that, that uh, Plato gives us, Socrates utters what is probably the most famous uh, soundbite in, you know, 2,500 years of Western philosophy, which is that the unexamined life is not worth living.
2: The world is changing Faster and faster today and there's so much uncertainty and one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly and the best way I found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet or your web browser and basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need to know information from over 3000 nonfiction bestsellers. They condense them down into Links which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I've found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash wolf to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash wolf.
3: The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead, He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com, Behind the Talent is a must-listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Let's... Work our way back to how Socrates got himself into that position, Um, and it's going to be sort of a long journey. But I think we're going to come right back to this point in a minute. One of the things that you talk about in this book and uh, in some of your other books is this idea that as humans, we have this incredible will to matter. You talk less about meaning and about the fact that we are we are desperate to feel like our very short time on this earth actually matters in some way. And um, you sort of play off of a couple different ways that we as humans go about that. And you talk about the Greek approach to mattering, which we will we'll follow down the road here back to Socrates. And, but you also talk about at the same time, the Hebrews were coming up with a different approach to mattering. And you say that Western society has kind of bounced back and forth between those two ever since. Can you explain a little bit about each of those approaches to, to mattering?
0: Yeah, so it's really amazing because in this period that we're, we're talking about, um when the Greeks are inventing philosophy, there are, there are, there's a tremendous kind of, uh, normative ferment in a large part of the world. Um, so there's, you know, the Hebrews across the Mediterranean, um, who are quietly at this point, uh, working out their own view as to you know, what it is to live a, a life worth le- living, a life that matters, that features... Uh, eventually, uh, they come round to the idea of of one God. Uh, it takes a while, uh, but of one God who created the physical universe without and the moral universe within. And to live a life that matters is to live as He wants you to live. So, a, a, you know, the beginnings of a real supernatural answer to this question of what it is to live a life that matters and the the Greeks um even before philosophy even going back um i argue to to the homeric times um to the iliad and the odyssey although their society was filled with gods it was a polytheistic society when it came to asking this kind of question what is it to you know what is it to spend one short time here uh, in a way that, that matters, um, they didn't look to their gods. They, they actually gave a very, uh, human answer to it. It was, uh, to do something out, outstanding. Um you, you see this in, in, in the Homeric Code. Um I call it the ethos of the extraordinary. To do something so that, um you don't really want to impress the gods. In fact, if you, if you, Attract too much of the uh, attention of the gods. Something bad usually happens, you know, a rape or a murder or you know, something pretty bad usually. Uh, so you really don't want to attract uh, too much attention from the gods. What you want is to really wow others so that your name will live on. This idea of, your, of doing something glorious, uh, and the, the word for glory was, was kleos, uh to do something glorious so that you would win fame and that also was the word clayous so the glory and the fame the measure of the glory is the fame to have your name on other people's lips so that so that it won't be as if you had never been um this was this this was how they saw living a a life that matters
2: and that kind of propped up you know, certainly the Athenian society, and you're saying far more than that in that it created a group of people who were very, very focused on being exceptional, uh, a lot of competition, a lot of striving that that made some of this civilization possible. But then Socrates comes in and he sort of turns that on its head,
0: exactly. so. So yeah, I mean, you know, so the Greeks, I mean, they were amazing, right? They, they created a a, a culture that that you know still makes our jaws drop. And uh, and they were quite impressed with themselves also. Uh, but they're, you know, they're highly competitive. Uh, and They were divided into many different city-states, and they would compete with one another. I mean, the Peloponnesian War was fought between the two leading city-states, Sparta and Athens. So, you know, there was it was a highly competitive society. They would compete at theater. You know, they would compete in war. They would compete in rhetoric. And they competed in thinking, too. So, you know, it was... Uh, it, it, there are many parallels between their society and, and our society. So when Socrates gets around to considering this question of what is it to live a you know a life worth living, um, a life that matters, he again, he's very Greek in the sense that he he doesn't bring the gods into it. It's nothing like the monotheistic answer uh, that, that, that that the Hebrews are working on. Uh, but, you know, it is an answer in terms of achieving something great. So in that sense, he's also very, uh, Greek. But the greatness has nothing to do with, uh, impressing others. It has to do with achieving real knowledge and achieving real virtue, you know, figuring out what is just and what is good and doing it. And you may not impress your fellow citizens. <laughs> And, and, and Socrates, and the proof is, of course, that Socrates didn't impress his fellow citizens. Well, he did many of them. He certainly impressed Plato and many other thinkers. But he didn't impress his fellow Athenian citizens. Uh, you know, they, they sent him to death. And then they, yeah they, they voted him guilty. And then they voted him, uh, uh, that he deserved to, to, to die. And he, he, he died by hemlock. And so it is, uh, So it's it's in some sense a very Greek answer, you know. It's not in terms of the gods or God. Uh, It's in terms of what we can achieve, and it takes all of our work. It's very very hard, but it's not measured in terms of the acclaim that we win.
2: It's really more in our character,
0: in our character and our mind. You know, uh, it's it it is a good thing to know more, and it is a good thing to. To be a good person, um, yes, and that, you know, depending on the society you live in, that may not be valued, but it is of value. And that's where he, Plato, and Socrates, too, really diverged uh, from the rest of their society.
2: Yeah, you say that Socrates is presented as asserting something so radical that his hearers think it has to be a joke he would, he says, rather be treated unjustly than treat others unjustly, which sounds, um, at least for that time, right, a crazy thing to say.
0: No, absolutely. And um, so this is in, well, he says it in various places, but he says it very, very strongly in a dialogue called the Gorgias, and that, uh, you know, he would far more rather be the victim of a tyrant um, and you know, uh, imprisoned and and, and and tortured, than be the tyrant who has ultimate power and can do anything he wants. Because that tyrant and his power, what seems like power, is simply destroying himself. He's destroying his soul. Uh, he is he is not living a life worth living. Uh, he is wasting his brief time here on Earth um, by by committing injustice. And uh, I think that's an extraordinary uh, message. It's, it's one I believe in very, very strongly. And um, and it's one I think that still sounds shocking, you know, then when you say, look, you know, I'm, no, I, I wouldn't want to have all this power if, if what I did with this power uh, was uh, pursue, you know, silly things or, or even unjust things, inflict injustice on others. Then, Then I'd rather be powerless.
2: Right, and that is uh, certainly a statement very out of vogue in most of today's world. You came up with this idea that you called the will to matter, and you, you came up with a concept actually in a fictional book, but of something called the mattering map. What is a mattering map?
0: This idea of a mattering map, um, which, is, which is caught on. I, I hadn't realized um, that it's been used in, um, in all sorts of contexts, um, even behavioral economics. I had first proposed it in my very first book, um, and it, which was a novel. It was called The Mind-Body Problem, and it was published in 1983, so a very long time ago. And uh the, I came up with both these ideas of, of the will to matter and the, and the mattering map because I'd written this, this novel about this young woman, and my editor at that time said to me, you know, I don't understand Renee Foyer. This is this character. You know, she's, she's, she's so beautiful and, you know, she's so sorrowful and she's so bright and she's so miserable. She's always on the verge of despair. Why? And I thought about this. You know, what was it about this character? And I realized she, she didn't feel like she mattered. That she wanted to matter in a particular way. And that's the idea of the mattering map, That we all, we all want to matter. We don't want it to be the case that you know, it, it makes no difference that we lived. Uh, you know, that if we hadn't shown up for our existence, it would have made no difference at all. Sometimes that's a terrible thought to us, maybe even more terrible. Terrible than the thought of, of death itself. Mm-hmm. Um But but we all find different ways of, 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 of trying of trying to feel like we matter. You know, for some for some people it's you know, I know people you know, just being the best person in the room is the way that they really feel. You know that they matter. If somebody else is, is more flashily dressed, they, they 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 take a hard hit. Or um, through some sort of art, through music or um, poetry or her novel writing or for, for through being very very smart. Now, for a Renee lawyer, um, she want she, that's what mattered to her. She wanted. She was she was in philosophy. That was the field she had gone into, as, as I had. And um, it's a field in which you're judged very, um narrowly on how smart are you. It's, it's, it's said she uh, about people when they're at, you know, graduate school. How good is he? How good is she? Meaning, you know, how, how smart are they at, 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 at this, this kind of very subtle and difficult reasoning. And she worried that she didn't matter in the region of the mattering map that mattered to her. And therefore she didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so if she was the one who really, you know, came up with this whole idea of the mattering map and and she comes, you know, at the end of the book to the realization that, you know, we all of us matter. To be human is to matter. And yes, there are things that each of us feel, you know, are worth pursuing, and it differs among us. But, but our our sense of, you know, our right to live, you know, whether in that really fundamental sense we matter, shouldn't depend on that, on whether we matter in this particular region of the mattering map. That There's complete relativism there, you know. You want to matter, you know, as a, as a flashy dresser, I want to matter as a good philosopher, you um, there's complete relativism and subjectivity there. But on the level in which it really matters, um, we all matter exactly the, the same amount. To be human is, is to matter. You know, I think actually realizing that, uh, realizing that about ourselves and about others, it's another way of understanding what human dignity is, is, is a way of, of feeding um, the good wolf. I think it's one of the most important ways we have of feeding the good wolf uh, to realize to the extent, you know, that any of us truly matters, we all matter and exactly...
2: I love Perfect Bars. I've talked about them before on here, how much I love them, how many of them I've eaten, which is an extraordinary number. But there's not just Perfect Bars. The company, Perfect Snacks, make a variety of products like protein bars, peanut butter cups, and kids snack bars. And they're all made with freshly ground nut butter, organic honey, and 20 organic superfoods. You're sure to find something that you'll love. Of course, my favorite is the standard Perfect Bar, dark chocolate chip peanut butter, although their peanut butter cups are amazing too, and you keep them in the fridge, and so they're cold. If you're not already convinced, they're also non-GMO, Project Verified. They're gluten-free, they're soy-free, they're kosher, and they're low GI, and they are delicious. So right now, Perfect Snacks is offering 15% off your online order. Just go to perfectsnacks.com wolf. Shop their refrigerated snacks at perfectsnacks.com wolf today to get 15% off your order. We want you to be prepared for snack time. So, go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf to stock up and save 15%. In the book, you have a dialogue between Plato and his book publicist about an idea that Plato holds that she finds pretty difficult to stomach at first. And the basic idea is that in the same way that a dentist, for example, is better able to, you know, fix our bite and adjust our bite in our mouth than, say, Chris sitting over here, that there are also people who are better able and trained to determine what a life worth living means, what living well means, that that decision is not necessarily made best by the person themselves, that there's a class of people that might be better able to make that decision.
0: Yeah, so Plato does truly believes this and, and in fact he thinks this is what philosophy is, is all about and that these are the most difficult questions that we could ask we all naturally ask them to be human is to ask these questions and and and, and to have opinions about it um but that they're they're subtle questions and difficult questions as um, difficult as, you know, math or, or physics or, or, or any of these questions that require experts. And he calls these people who devote their lives to trying to answer this question philosophers. That's really what he means by a philosopher. Um, and he he understands very, very well um, how odious this sounds, and and the natural resentment of philosophers. I mean, if they are at the very dawn of philosophy, as it's being created by Plato, uh, he understands uh, the kind of resentment that, that it will cause. And it's true, it still does even in our day. It's like, you know, to be human is to have a, a point of view on these questions about, you know, what it is to live a life worth living. Um, how dare somebody claim to be an expert about this—it it seems somehow to diminish uh, a person's humanity to be told, "No, no, there are experts on this field, in this field." This is—you this is, know—Plato understood. The, um, he was saying something very radical, and it—and it is something radical. And it—I think it—you know—justifiably, understandably causes resentment. And yet, the philosophers have helped us to. Inch along and in making progress and seeing our way clear to, to these difficult questions. They really have. That's one of the things I try to argue in the book. That, you know, they, they have helped to enlarge our points of view and, and to feed our better worlds
2: a lot of the theme of the book is why philosophy matters today. And, and you say that progress in philosophy consists, at least in part, in constantly bringing to light the covert presumptions that burrow their way deep down into our thinking, too deep down for us to even be aware of them.
0: Yes, exactly. So, you know, we are very complicated creatures. We are reasoning creatures. We have beliefs and we, and we if challenged, we'll give the reasons for our beliefs and we act. We don't just behave, we act. We have reasons for our actions, you know, if challenged, we will give our reasons. We're justificatory creatures. We try to give justifications for things. And reasons for actions and reasons for beliefs can be evaluated. Some are not so good. Some are better than others and uh so that there are actual you know there are there are ways these can be evaluated, but we're also uh, you know we're very compartmentalized creatures and and we're we're self- deceiving creatures, Plato, so, you know interestingly enough, I mean he's a great expert on the ways in which we deceive ourselves and we deceive ourselves you know often with um With highfalutin sounding reasons that aren't the real reasons. Uh, we're hiding the real reasons from, from ourselves. And so there is a kind of excavation that, that ought to take place, Plato says, you know. And the way you do this is you dialogue. Um, so philosophy is a very much a community effort. You know, you it, it should be many people coming together, challenging each other, you know, really butting heads. It tends to be a quite aggressive sport philosophy, but, um, you know, and, and, and sometimes that's dumb stuff, that's ego stuff, right, people showing off, but sometimes at its best, it's sincere, it's authentic, it's um it's trying to examine, to get down to what is really our reasons for, uh, for our actions, for our beliefs, and, and evaluating them. And, and, you know, sometimes they're so core to us, uh, that um you know, it, it it's hard to see that they even require a, a justification. And that's why, Philosophy is done better when many different people from different backgrounds, different points of view, different genders, gender orientations um, are brought together. And so in this sense, philosophy has made great progress just in my own life, because when I entered into it, um, I was always the only woman, always the only woman at the table, at the seminar table. And there are more women now, and that has made a big difference, um, because we Often find ourselves challenging presumptions that our colleagues aren't even aware were presumptions. They just went unseen. So it's very, very important to dialogue and to dialogue with as many different cultures and points of view and orientations as
2: possible. Excellent. Well, we are nearing the end of the show. I'd like to end with asking you a question, uh, something that you bring up in the book. Chris and I, uh, as listeners will know, are both huge dog fans. Um, We love dogs. And you say in the book that the dogs are the most philosophical of all animals. Can you uh, tell me why you say that?
0: Yeah, you know, that's another thing. Plato... Actually, say that dogs have a kind of love of truth, and they'll they'll follow it. They they follow the scent. You can't, you know, a dog following a scent cannot be turned away. He, he the dog knows what he knows, and he's going to go there, and um and not be, uh not be turned away. And that is that's the way we ought to be. Plato says, you know, when it comes to to truth and virtue. You know, that even if others are, are pulling us away, we know the scent. we're going to go after
2: it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, uh, Rebecca, for coming on the show. Congratulations again on your recent award and all your success.
0: Oh, thank you so much. It really was a, a pleasure.
2: Excellent. I enjoyed it also. You too. Take care.
0: So long. Bye.
1: You can learn more about Rebecca Neuberger-Goldstein and get a free download of Eric's favorite quotes of hers at oneufeed.net slash Rebecca.